If you are staying in the service, then I'll go ahead and encourage you to turn uh, to the book of Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 19 today. This last Sunday and, and this last Tuesday at our town hall meeting, uh, we've been talking about just the gender revolution that's happening within our culture. Last week on Sunday, Jake preached on how we as a society have moved from a binary understanding of gender, male and female, to one of, of just limitless possibilities. And he preached through that by looking at Romans chapter 1 and Genesis 1 and 2. On Tuesday night, we looked at what God's word says about transgenderism, about homosexuality. We tried to take God's word and apply biblical wisdom to certain questions that we have. Uh, today, today, what we're going to do is we're just going to hold up God's word and see what it says about marriage. This isn't going to be so much of a defense um, against transgenderism or anything else, um, but it's just going to be holding up marriage that we would see the beauty and the grandeur of marriage as God has given it to us. I, I want us to see why we as Christians believe that Scripture teaches that marriage is created by God to be between one man and one woman. I want us to be in awe of the role of, of a husband and awe of the role of a wife. And I want us to see that marriage points to a far greater spiritual reality than just one man and one woman coming together. Ray Ortland, in his book titled Marriage, he begins by saying, marriage was given to us at the beginning of all things as a brightly shining fixity of eternal significance. And when we come into God's word, what we understand is that we as humans, we did not create marriage and thus we certainly do not have the authority or wisdom to redefine it. God is the one who created marriage. He is the one who has given it to humanity for our good and for his glory. We cannot compromise on the understanding, on the biblical understanding of marriage. And so our main point this morning is that God designed marriage to be between a man and a woman to display the beauty of the gospel. And that's what I hope that we see today. And so if you have your Bibles, I would like to invite you to go ahead and stand. And we're going to read Matthew chapter 19, 1 through 6. Each week we stand at the reading of God's word uh, because it is God's word. And we do so to, to recognize him, the authority in which he has given it to us, and understanding that his word is good for us and it equips us to do that which he calls us to do. So let me read Matthew 19, starting in verse 1. Now, when Jesus had finished saying these things, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning male and female, and said, therefore a, male, therefore a man shall not leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Let me pray. Father, we come to you now in the name of Jesus Christ. And Father, we, we praise you for the gift of marriage. Give us wisdom today that we would understand what is the purpose of marriage. May our marriages, may the marriages in this room point to your grace and to your glory. God, as we look at the roles of a husband, the roles of a wife, keep us from discouragement, keep us from bitterness. 
Rather, fill us with strength and encouragement, knowing that your spirit is in us and that we would live as you have called and designed us to. Strengthen our marriages today. Reveal to us our sin that we would confess and trust in you. Mold us more into your image. God, may we embrace the roles that you have given us for the sake of your glory, for communicating the truth of the gospel to this world, and for our joy. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. So we're just going to kind of walk through this passage, and I kind of have it broken up into just four steps or four points. Uh, number one, we're just going to look at the pattern of marriage. In verse 3, there's Pharisees, and they come to Jesus, and we're told they come to test Jesus. Their question deals with marriage. It deals with divorce. They want to know, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause at all. And today we're not going to necessarily get into to what the Bible teaches about divorce. But what we understand is just as there was a low understanding thousands of years ago regarding marriage, we can see that there often is a low view of marriage throughout culture. But I want us to see how Jesus answers. If you look in verses four and five, Jesus answers by going back to Genesis one and two. Interestingly, Paul, Paul will do the same thing. Paul, one of the writers of the New Testament, wrote many of the, the books that we have in the New Testament. In the book of Ephesians, 1 Timothy, and 1 Corinthians, when giving instructions regarding men and women, especially marriage, he goes always back to Genesis 1 and 2. So why? Why is it that the biblical writers like Jesus, the, the author of all scripture, why is it that, that Paul will refer back to Genesis 1 and 2 when talking about marriage? Well, Francis Schaeffer said these things. He said, these chapters, Genesis 1, 2, and even 3, are some of the most important chapters in the Bible for they place man in the cosmic setting and show him for his peculiar uniqueness. These chapters set the stage for the entire rest of the biblical storyline. And in Genesis 1 and 2, we're given a pattern for how men and women relate to one another, especially in marriage. So, in fact, Genesis 1:27, we read, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. This is what Jesus refers to. And the first truth we see is that God created humanity in his image. We need to know that. Humanity exists because God created us. And secondly, we see that God created a binary. He created male. He created female. Gender's not random, and neither is it limitless. Rather, God designed humanity to have two genders, male and female. They're distinct, and yet we see they're equal in worth. Both male and female are made in the image of God. We are to represent God here, his rule on earth, and, throughout, and then as we go from verse 27 into verse 28, the biblical writers explain what that looks like. Like in Genesis 1, 28, we read, and so, so God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So humanity is called to fill the earth with image bearers. Now think about that. That only takes place between a male and a female coming together. The creation mandate is only possible through the marriage of a man and a woman. 
And then we are to bring forth God's rule in all of creation as we subdue it, as we exercise dominion over this earth. And so in chapter one of Genesis, we have this big um, kind of Google Earth view of humanity and between a man and a woman. And then we go into chapter two and we get zoomed in a bit and we see how man was made, how woman was made, and a little bit more understanding of the roles in which they have. In chapter two, verse seven, we see that God made man first. He was made from the ground. God breathed life into him. In chapter two, verse 15, we're told that then God places man in a garden so that he would work it, so that he would keep it. He was to work the garden. He was to grow the garden. He was to to guard it from anything harmful. Man was created with greater physical strength to accomplish the purpose of the working and the leading and the guarding of the garden. But when God makes man and, and everything else in creation exists, he looks at it and goes, it's not good yet. And so what What God does then, he has man fall into a deep sleep and he takes a rib from his side, not from his head, that woman would lord over man, not from his feet, that man would would lord over the woman, but from his side. And in verse 18, we're told that the woman was designed for man, from man, to be his helper. Now, automatically, sometimes, and and just so you know, there's going to be times that you recoil as a man or a woman as we look at just what God's word says about what it is to be a man, what it is to be a woman in this world. That's the sin within you. So just know that. So be prepared if when you feel like a recoiling, and so women, when you feel like that recoiling, I'm a helper, like realize that that's, that's not God demeaning the value of women. God himself is called a helper in scripture. In fact, in Psalm 33, verse 20, we read, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. So both men and women have been designed by God to reflect his image in unique ways. Man was made for the working, the guarding, the ruling, and the leading within the garden, whereas woman was made for the filling, the nurturing, and the establishing of new life. They're made in God's image, equal in worth, but different in function. But it's only when they come together, a man and a woman in marriage, that God's creation mandate for image bearers to fill the earth and, the, and exercise his rule, that it would be accomplished. And so notice what happens. So God has made man, God has made woman. They come together. Man then says in verse 23 to 25, these are the first words of man in in the biblical story line. It says, verse 23, chapter two of Genesis. Then man said, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Adam sees Eve, and he breaks out and prays, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Man leaves his family, comes together with woman. They, they would be joined in one flesh and begin a new family. And then to show the awesomeness of this moment, we read they're naked and without shame. There's a lot of things we could say there. Kind of want to. (laughs) Never mind. We're just going to keep going. But, uh, But marriage is about a man and a woman intimately knowing, loving, 
and embracing one another so that there'd be no shame among them. That's the biblical picture of marriage. An intimate relationship so close, so vulnerable, so pure, that they can stand completely naked before one another, completely exposed, absolutely vulnerable, and have no shame, but absolute love and intimacy with one another. And so when, so when Jesus turns to the Pharisees in Matthew 19, and he says, have you not read the scriptures? This is what he's referring to. You're asking me about divorce? You're asking me, can we divorce at any cause whenever we want? Do you not know why man was made, why woman was made, that when they come together, it is for this intimacy, for this relationship that man shall not separate. God has created a pattern in the beginning of Genesis that is meant to define and shape marriage for all creation and time. And we need to know that marriage Marriage is no small add-on to the Bible. It's not like a perk that humanity just gets to experience or redefine however we see fit. Marriage is a major theme that runs all the way from Genesis to Revelation. In fact, the next two points are meant to just show the significance of marriage in God's Word. So the next point is the prominence of marriage. We see the pattern, man and woman coming together, that they'd be joined together. Man shall not separate. They, they now become one flesh. Now we see the prominence of marriage. In Genesis, we see that the Bible begins with a marriage celebration. Adam goes, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. They're joined together. Now get this. The Bible begins with the marriage ceremony. And then when we come to the the end of the Bible in Revelation, we see that it, it ends with a marriage ceremony. In Revelation 19, there is, this, there is this wedding supper between Christ and the church. In Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4, this is what we read. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven, the first earth has passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. So the Bible ends with a bride holy and brilliant in glory descending from heaven to the new earth where she is joined to her groom. And just as in the beginning, we have a man and woman coming together and there's no shame. So here at the end of, of the biblical story, we have the bride and the groom and, the, and God wiping away all tears that there would be no sin, no shame, no suffering at all. The Bible begins with marriage, it ends with marriage. And if we go to the middle of the Bible, as we go from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and we begin to walk, looking at the life of Jesus, and as Jesus begins his ministry and begins to do his miracles, what is the first miracle that he does? He turns water into wine, and what's the occasion? A wedding. The beginning of the book is marriage, the end of the book is marriage, and the middle of the book is marriage. The structure, just simply the structure 
of the Bible reveals to us the significance of marriage. But it's in our next point we see even more the significance of marriage. Think back. In Revelation, we have a bride coming down to her groom. Who's the bride? Who's the groom? What is this marriage that's coming together? This brings us to the picture of marriage. In Ephesians 5, Paul instructs the church about marriage. Listen to what he says in Ephesians 5, 31 to 32. He says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Notice, where did he quote this from? Genesis 2. So again, right back to the biblical storyline of Genesis 1 and 2, sets the stage for all relationships. It says, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So Paul, like Jesus, he, he goes back to the set forth in Genesis 2, and he says that the marriage of a man and woman coming together as one flesh is a mystery. And this mystery has now been revealed. Well, how? How has it been revealed? What's been revealed? Why was a man created first and given, to, given the role to lead, guard, and to work? Why was, was the woman created second and created to help man and to follow his leadership? What about this mystery of the way man was created and woman was created and the way they come together? What has been revealed that in Genesis 1 and 2 and all throughout the Old Testament is a mystery? What Paul says in verse 32, he says, the mystery is profound. I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. He's telling us that ultimately marriage between one man and one woman was designed to point us to and help us understand the marriage between Jesus and his bride, the church. So a husband and wife. So if you're here today, you're married, husbands, wives, you point to the far greater reality of Christ and his church. This is why we can't redefine marriage. It's a picture given to us by God that we would understand the relationship between his son and the people whom he has saved, the church, his bride, and the everlasting relationship that they will have with one another. Marriage is a gift to us from God. So we would understand that relationship. The pattern of marriage points us to Christ and his bride, the church. Marriage is about the gospel. That's what we see here. That's what Paul is saying. When Christ comes and he saves his people and he joins them to himself for all of eternity, that's what marriage has been pointing us to for the last thousands of years ever since Genesis 1 and 2 were written. Marriage is about Jesus saving a people who will live with him as his bride. Think about this. This is why Marriage has always been under attack. Like, why is it that Satan hates marriage? Why is it that in our culture, we try to make divorce easy? Why is it that in our sinfulness, we want to redefine genders and just distort the picture of marriage? Why is cohabitation preferred instead of marriage? Because the world, because Satan, because the sin within us hates the gospel. So if we're going to overcome this, if we're going to understand the reality of marriage for what it was given to us, we must regularly come back to God's word and be reminded of the beauty and the significance of marriage. And so you might say, so, so how is it though 
that the marriage of a man and a woman points us to Christ and the church. Well, in, in the preceding verses, Paul tells us that as he gives instructions on what it is to be a man and what it is to be a woman in marriage. And so I want to read Ephesians 5.22. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. It's a big passage, so I think it's easier if we just read it, and we'll be there for a few moments, so it'll be helpful. Ephesians 5.22 through 28. This is what we read. Paul starts in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. I want to take a moment, just look what we see here. So we're going to start with wives, because that's the order that Paul starts with, and then we'll end with husbands. Wives, you represent the church. That's what, that's what marriage, and in the marriage, the wife represents the church. Verse 24 says, as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands. Why are wives created and called to submit and defer to their husbands? It's not because men are ontologically superior or greater in any way. It's because the wife pictures the church. And the husband pictures Christ. To be a wife and reflect the love the church has for Christ is indeed a high calling. I just want you to think about that, women. You display before the church and for the world the willful, joyful submission that the church is to have before Christ its Savior. Now, interestingly, like verse 21, right before what we read, Paul is addressing the entire church, and he says men and women are to submit to one another. Then right after that, he goes into the roles of a husband and a wife. The wife has the privileged position that not only does she remind her family, her husband, and her kids, but wives, you are a reminder to the entire church of our relationship in our position, in our submission to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So we could say this. If you want to know how we are to act towards Christ, if you want to know what does our relationship look like towards Christ, we could answer that in two ways. We could say, look to the Word. The Word of God will tell you what it looks like to obey, to submit, to worship Christ. And we could say, men, women, church, Look to the wives within the church. They are a picture of what it looks like for the church to submit to Christ and the role of every person before Jesus, our Savior. The submission of a wife is not degrading in any way. It's an exalted position so that the entire church and world would be reminded of the calling to follow the headship of Jesus Christ. 
In fact, many times the wife might be smarter and even have greater leadership qualities than the husband. And that shouldn't surprise us. Men are are created in, in great ways. Women are created in great ways. In fact, there are times that the women's qualities, gifts, the the outward qualities like leadership and, and the ability to speak are, are greater than, the, than that that her husband may have. This might cause people to say things like this. Why do you defer to your husband? You are smarter. You are more qualified. You have more degrees than your husband. Why would you submit to him? Why do you always defer to him? To which I want you to think about this to which the wife can then respond. I have been created and designed and called by God to submit to and follow the leadership of my husband so as to give the world the picture of how Christ saves and calls us to follow him. She gives the gospel. Her life testifies of the gospel and it ought to put people in awe. That ought to be a question, women, that you desire people to ask of you. Why is it that you submit so willingly? Why do you do such joyful submission to your husband? Women, God has given you incredible qualities and gifts to serve and to build up your husband. And you might say, but are there limits to this submission? What are the boundaries? Like, Where's the loophole? Where do, we, where do we not do that? I think, I think Paul sees that. I think Paul anticipates that, which is why in, in verse 24, he says, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. There are no boundaries. There are no limits. Just as we have no boundaries and limits to our submission before Christ, So wives, you have no boundaries or limits before submission to your husbands. Now, this certainly does not mean we follow them into sin. No, that would certainly contradict other scriptures. But where your husband is not leading into sin, you willfully and joyfully follow him as the church follows Christ. In Proverbs 31, we read about a a husband who sits with the elders in the city, and he's well-respected. And the context of Proverbs 31 tells us why he's respected, because of his godly wife. Wives, know that you have been designed and created in incredible ways, and your gifts are to come alongside and to serve and to help your husband in the roles that God has given him, that he would accomplish the roles and purposes that God has given. So that's It's a picture of wives. Wives, you reflect the church. Let that be your prayer. Every morning you wake up, God, help me to display the love to my husband and to this world that the church has to Christ. May I show that picture in everything I do. Now, husbands, husbands, you represent Christ. Verse 25, we are told that husbands are called to love their wives as Christ loves the church. So the headship of the husband is rooted and grounded in the headship of Christ. Do you get this, men? You're called to lead your wives, lead your families as Christ leads the church. You cannot be passive. 
You were created. You were designed not to sit back. Remember what happens when, when Adam sits back. Genesis 3, Adam's not leading and shepherding, and we see sin entering into the world. Men, we are called to actively lead, actively shepherd our families. We're called to demonstrate the headship of Christ within our families. And so how did Christ do this? We go to the cross. He lays down his life at the cross for his bride so she could be saved. Husbands, we are called to willingly and joyfully lay down our lives for the sake of the church, for our bride, for our wives. We're to place the needs, her needs and desires before our own. And so we're to say, well, well, what does that look like? As much we could say, um, let me just point to two words. I mean, if we, if we could just know these two words, I think it would help us all in the way that we lead and we, we shepherd our families. Verse 29, look at that in Ephesians chapter five. Paul says this, Husbands, you are to nourish and cherish your wife as Christ does the church. Nourish and cherish, those are definitely words that us men, we use on a daily basis. Probably used that earlier today. Wife, how have I nourished and cherished you today? Um, I don't know if we use that a whole lot. Whether you use the word, we need to know the word and we need to practice these words. So first word, a husband is to nourish their wife. The word nourish means to develop. It means to lift up. So men, you are called to care for your wife. You are called to love your wife through your words and your actions that she would know Christ more. Through your own transformation of becoming more like Christ, you live like Christ before her. Through your understanding and knowledge of God's word, you teach and you shepherd with the word and through the word so your wife and your family would be washed in the word just as what Jesus does to the church so that they would grow in their Christ-likeness and be prepared for the day Jesus returns. Husbands, you are the shepherd and pastor of your home. You are created for that purpose. You are designed for that purpose. You have been given the spirit and equipped for that purpose. And when you wonder, how are you equipped? Pick up the word because the word is the means in which you are equipped for every good work that God calls you to do. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Men, you are to know the word of God, lead your family into godliness. You have everything you need through the power of the indwelling spirit who is in you to do this. So number one, men, you lead your wives that they would know Christ more. Secondly, a husband is to cherish his wife. The word cherish means to comfort and to warm. Husbands, you are to delight in your wife. You are to prize your wife. Her heart ought to be warmed by the many ways in which you serve her, care for her, and value her. I want you to think about this. What a blessing it is to be a wife, married to a husband for 30, 40, 50 years who nourishes and cherishes her over that time. Would that not be an amazing relationship, wives? Would you desire that? I mean, apart from Christ, we cannot fulfill our role as husbands, but only in Christ are we able to, and he has saved you and equipped you to do this. 
Now there's so much more we could say here. So much more. But but do you see the point Paul is making? Husbands, your love for your wife is meant to testify to this world of the love that Christ has for the church. So, So when the world looks at you men, and they see you nourishing and cherishing and speaking these warm, tender words to your wife. And, and they say, why do you do that? Why are you soft? Why are you so gentle? Why are you so patient? You point them to Christ and the way he treats us and loves us and cares for us. And wives, your love for your husbands is meant to testify to the church and to this world of the love and submission that the church has for Jesus Christ. So that the world would look and say, wives, why do you do that? You are so qualified. You have so many abilities. Why do you keep deferring to your husbands? Why do you always look to him? Because you are reminding the church. You are pointing us. You are instructing the church that we look to Christ for everything. Remembering all that we have said, I want you to think about this. Uh, the book of Common Prayer begins marriage this way. And hopefully you can read it. I, I put it up on the, maybe you can read it. It's a little small. So this is how marriages, under the instruction of the book of Common Prayer, this is how they would begin. Now just think about these words. Dearly beloved, We are gathered here today in the sight of God and in the face of this company to join together this man and this woman in holy matrimony, which is an honorable estate instituted of God, signifying unto us the mystical union that is betwixt Christ and his church, which holy estate Christ adorned and beautified with his presence and first miracle that he wrought in Cana of Galilee and is commended of St. Paul to be honorable among all men and therefore is not to be any to be entered into unadvisedly or lightly, but reverently, discreetly, soberly, and in the fear of God. Do you see the beauty and weight of those words? Oh, that all marriages would begin like this. That this would be the call of our marriage. And, and may we heed the words, let us not enter into marriage unadvisedly or lightly, but reverently, discreetly, soberly in the fear of God. If there's not a, an instruction for biblical counseling prior to marriage, there it is right there. We need to make sure we are entering into marriage with the understanding that this marriage is more about God and his glory than it is my personal satisfaction. That this marriage is about testifying to the world what Christ has done for me than what I get out of this relationship. We need to know that when we we actively are going to have sin within us that recoils, that resists the roles that God has given us And if we were to live out as husbands the role of Christ in the family and wives, if you were to live out the role of the church in the family, it is going to be through daily repentance that we confess our own sins. Not necessarily our partner's sins, but our own sins. That we would live more like Christ. That we would live more like the church demonstrating the gospel in our marriages. Men, We must come alongside other men and help one another to live like Christ. We cannot just watch each other. 
We cannot just think we're all just going to get there organically, but we must come alongside one another. That's why we do table groups to help us get in, in connection with one another. That's why we do things called D groups where men are with men and women are with women, studying God's word, spurring us on in our faith. That's why we're now doing things like discipleship training classes that we would better understand the gospel, the truth of God's word for the purpose of us being more transformed so we would live as God has called us to. Men, we must spur one another on to live like Christ in our marriages. In women, you must come alongside other women, reminding them and instructing them in the beauty and the significance of living like the church. You cannot just passively watch other women and hope that they all get there, especially if you're an older woman. What we see is the pattern in scripture is that the older women are to come alongside the younger women and instruct them and guide them that they would love their husbands as God has called them to. So women, you do not need us to create a ministry for this to happen. Grab other women and begin leading and instructing. Men, you do not need us to create a marriage ministry so all of a sudden, men, you can start adopting other men and start leading the word of God tells us that we are to live out these roles and we must spur one another on. Marriage has been designed and given by God to give the world a picture of the gospel. We need one another spurring us on, instructing us, calling out sin in our lives so that we would live as God has called us to. So those are the first three points. Fourth point, the permanence of marriage. So now we, we kind of come all the way back to, to Matthew 19. We come back here. Matthew 19, Jesus has been questioned, when can we divorce? And so he says, do you not know the scriptures? He quotes Genesis 1, quotes Genesis 2, which then we see how those ultimately point to the gospel through what Paul has said. But Jesus says in verse six, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So a couple things just to point out here. Notice who ultimately is the one who joins a man and woman together. This will, this will be our interactive time. So you shout it out. Who's the one who ultimately joins man and woman together? God does. At your marriage, there's probably a best man and a maid of honor, forgetting those terms. They're there and they're witnesses. But ultimately, the witness at your wedding was God himself. And he is the one who brought you together so that your marriage would testify of the gospel. So then God says, what, man has, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, we're not going to try to unpack divorce and get into the details today, but we can clearly see from Genesis 2 to Matthew 19, the clear teaching of Scripture is that the intent behind marriage is that it would be permanent. And this truth blows the disciples away. And if it blows you away today, like, whoa, like it's supposed to be permanent? It's meant to have a weight to it. In fact, the disciples say, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's best not to marry. They can't even imagine this. So you're telling me, if we're not supposed to divorce, should we even do this? And Jesus is like, yes, if only we had this kind of view of marriage today, right? Right? 
If we would approach marriage with this kind of view, we never come, we never approach marriage with any kind of loopholes or gray areas thinking, well, you know, if they do this, then we're out. But we would have this high view of marriage that says, what God has joined together, man shall not separate. How different would marriage be today if the church shared this view, if we held this view, if we practiced this view? Let me say, marriage was created by God that it would be permanent in this life. But we need to know this. But in eternity, we will not be married. We will not marry one another. Remember, the marriage of a husband and wife pictures a greater reality, Christ and the church. Marriage here on earth is a signpost directing to the far greater spiritual union between Christ and the church. Once reality has come, we no longer need the picture, right? Because we're going to enjoy the true meaning of marriage being joined to Christ for all of eternity. So this is what Jesus says in Matthew 22, verse 30. He once again is correcting the religious leaders about marriage. And he says, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given marriage, but are like angels in heaven. There's no giving in marriage. Our marriages today are meant to point to the far greater marriage of Christ in the church. Just as our marriages are to be permanent in this life, so the church's marriage to Christ will last for all of eternity. Do you see how all of our marriage is meant to point to the gospel? Why do we not approach, why do we not think about divorce? Why is what God has joined together, do we not separate? Because our union with Christ is inseparable. We persevere with one another. We fight, not with one another, but fight for our marriage. To hold it together. Because ultimately, we're pointing to this union, this perfect union held together by the grace and love of God that we would, be un, that we would never be separated for all of eternity. Our marriages point to the everlasting union that we have in Christ. So we've looked at the pattern, the prominence, the picture, and the permanence of marriage. God designed marriage to be between a man and a woman to display the beauty of the gospel. This is why we do not redefine it. This is why we will defend marriage with all of our strength. Together, we with other believers, we form the body of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. Jesus is our groom, and we long for the day that he returns, that we'd be gathered with him. Wives, by your submission to your husbands, you have the high calling of reminding the church, instructing the church, being the example to the church of how we submit to one another and ultimately Christ. Husbands, by how you love, nourish, and cherish your wife, you have the high calling of reminding the church, instructing the church, and being an example to the church of how Christ loves, nourishes, and cherishes us as we wait for the day of his return. Marriage is a gift to humanity for our good and for God's glory. That's the purpose of marriage. Let's pray. Father,
And Father, I, I, I thank you that you've given us marriage. And Lord, as we've been reminded of marriage, the weight of marriage, the beauty of marriage, the purpose of marriage, the pattern of marriage, the picture of marriage, all of these things. And God, I pray that we're moved to awe and we're moved to wonder. Lord, I pray that where there is sin in our life that's creeping up and saying, well, if my husband was this or my wife was this or any type of objections that we are, are beginning to think through in our heart. Lord, I pray that you would reveal to us those sins and we'd confess that. God, marriage is hard here on earth because we, we do wrestle with sin. But God, may we know that your grace is sufficient. And God, you have sent your son Jesus that he would be our high priest and we can come boldly to him, receiving grace every day, every minute of the day. The husbands, we would love like you, love like Christ, and that the wives would be able to love like the church and we'd live out the role that you have given us. God, I pray that every marriage here would be strengthened, that, that every person here, every man and every woman would desire to live the calling that you have placed upon their life, that we would display the truth of the gospel in our relationships. God, we praise you. In your name, Jesus, amen.